But we're going to start our journey through the Gospel of Luke today. So I am excited about introducing you guys to just the majesty of this Gospel today. So let me go ahead and pray, and then we will uh, get started. Well, Father, we come before you just eager to learn from your Word. You have been so kind into how you have revealed yourself through Scripture, through Revelation. We thank you for this opportunity to look behind the scenes, to look behind the curtain as to how this gospel was made so that we might be enriched by its truthfulness. Pray that you'll help me to be clear. We pray that we will be encouraged, convicted if necessary. In Christ's name, amen. About uh, five years ago, a an organization polled the American public and asked about their views of the Bible. And what they found was that a rising percentage of Americans, some 26%, see the Bible as a book of fables, legends, and moral precepts recorded by man. And it started really in the young, where the younger you are, the more likely you are to see the book, the Bible as, as a book of fables, it's not a book of, of history. And many people who have this position will, will try to soften it by saying, well, it's not the historicity of the Bible that matters, it's the truth that's contained therein. Like Aesop's fables. You guys know about Aesop's fables? Does it really matter if a tortoise and a hare actually competed in a race? Or does it matter that we learn the lesson from it? Uh, does it really matter that a goose actually laid a golden egg and a greedy owner, owner killed the goose to try to get all the gold? Or is what matters the moral lesson behind it? Now, this past week, I was, not this past week, the week before, we were in Washington, D.C., and we had a chance to visit the, the Jefferson Memorial. And you go into this memorial of this great man and inscribed on all the walls are some of his great statements. And it's fascinating how much he invokes the name of God and speaks appreciatively of, of religion. But at the same time, in his own private life, he had a very interesting view of the Bible. He actually made his own version of the Gospels. And what he did was he took a Bible and he basically copied and pasted the parts he viewed as true. So absent from this Bible are any references to the miracles, any reference to the resurrection, any reference to Jesus being the Son of God or divine. So clearly he's a man who appreciated the moral teachings of the Bible, but he rejected its historicity. So... Is that a legitimate take on the Bible? To see it as maybe a moral or ethical authority, but not necessarily a book of history, or does the Bible present itself in a different way? Now, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at the opening of the book of Luke, and this is a fascinating passage because it lets us know how the Bible views itself. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch 
as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, this was written long before you had dust jackets and tables of contents. When this book was written, it was likely in a scroll. And Theophilus would open the scroll, and this would be the first line that he would read. It's an elegant, eloquent summation of what he's trying to accomplish And these opening sentences, what they did was they really set the tone. This is what you can expect from this book. He's making reference to to his sources and to his method. And what really comes across is that this is not a low-class hack job. This is a first-class account of the life of Christ. This is something that is carefully researched, sourced, documented, and transmitted to you, most excellent Theophilus. And the idea is, and this is something done in other forms of ancient literature, is to elevate this gospel account of Luke into kind of the the pantheon of great works of the age. Now, when we were in Washington, D.C., we had a chance to go to the Museum of the Bible. And it was unexpectedly awesome. A first-class museum. Do you guys know much about the Museum of the Bible? It was basically funded by the Green family who owns Hobby Lobby, and they dropped a half billion dollars on this project. Uh, it houses all these antiquities. I even saw an ancient manuscript of, of the Gospel of Luke that does a great job of telling the story of the Bible. But this museum is first-class I mean, we were in these elevators, and I dorked out. My family's still embarrassed by this. I videotaped the, inner, the elevators because they were the best elevators I've seen in my life. <laughs> and poor Becky had to explain to the other passengers in the elevator that this is not normal for me. No, just kidding. There weren't any. I made sure I was alone. I at least had that dignity. But the idea is the Bible is a majestic book. And the Bible deserves a majestic museum to testify, to curate all of these great finds that we have. And so when you look at Luke, here he is, he's writing this, and he curates a majestic account of the Gospels. And what we're going to see is that there is truth in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke starts off with an eloquent saying that this What you're about to read, Theophilus, is true. And because it's true, you can be certain and you can live your life with conviction. I love that word conviction. It means to be strongly convinced. And when somebody is strongly convinced that something actually happened that is actually true, it transforms the way you live. And so what we're going to do is we're going to basically... Look at this passage and see three reasons why the Gospel of Luke is true. 
Number one, Luke uses credible sources. Number two, Luke has a methodical approach. And finally, Luke wrote with a noble purpose. When you look at this passage, you see the truth of the gospel of Luke, beginning with Luke using credible sources. Look at verses 1 and 2. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now right there we see that the gospel of Luke was not generated in a vacuum. He wasn't sitting around the campfire with other Christians smoking peyote and just seeing what comes up. He was not staring at seer stones in a hat like Joseph Smith did when he translated the Book of Mormon. He was using other accounts. And, and there's, there's three observations I want to make here about these two passages. Number one, there are other narratives. There are other written narratives. He says it here. Two, these narratives were delivered by eyewitness ministers of the Word. And number three, the author had personal interaction with them. Okay, and all of this builds the credibility. Number one, there are other narratives. He says that others have attempted and by implication succeeded in completing a narrative. They actually wrote down the events of Jesus Christ. Now, at a minimum, this would include the Gospel of Mark. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, 50% of the Gospel of Mark finds its way into Luke. That was likely a source that Luke used when he looked at this written account. In my view, it probably includes Matthew, might include some other written accounts that were circulating during the time. But people understood that the events were so important that they had to write them down, record them so that future generations could benefit from them. Now, note, Luke doesn't knock these other accounts. He just acknowledges their existence and the role they play in his writings. Number two, these narratives were delivered by eyewitnesses. Notice the plural, witnesses. This is the gold standard in ancient uh, evidence. If somebody actually saw the events, they didn't do DNA fingerprinting or anything like that. If people saw what happened, they conveyed what they saw. And so these narratives were compiled by eyewitnesses. Like Matthew, right? He was one of the uh, original disciples. John Mark likely was living among them at the time. He's definitely placed in Jerusalem. But these are people who saw what took place, and Luke records what they saw. Now, thirdly, let me, got lost my notes here. The author interacted with these eyewitnesses. He interacted with these eyewitnesses. Now, these eyewitnesses are not just eyewitnesses. They were also ministers of the word, weren't they? They saw it, and then they told other people about it. Now, you might question the credibility of someone who says Jesus rose from the dead, and I now identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, right? They are not being objective, they're not able to remove themselves from the narrative and empirically verify what they saw. But if you saw Jesus rise from the dead, how else would you speak about it? 
that somebody saw Jesus rise from the dead and the risen Christ, and they were to reject him as Lord, what would that say about their objectivity? Does that make sense? The only way to be objective if Jesus actually rose from the dead is to tell other people, guess what? He rose from the dead. He is alive. And so naturally, this would lead to a a mission, right? This is not like Pilate and Caiaphas who had interaction with Jesus but were not servants of the word. These are not necessarily people like Paul who were servants of the word but didn't actually see the resurrection, although he did see the resurrected Christ. These are people who saw it and then told other people about it, and that mission eventually caused them to interact with Luke. And Luke is somebody who had a personal encounter with these people. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, it's interesting. What exactly was accomplished among Luke and these other people? Well, the power of the gospel saved his soul. Right? When the word goes out, doesn't it change people, accomplish its work? Luke is somebody who experienced the miracle. He learned about the gospel from these people, and then eventually he was able to fortify it with further research. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke is a second generation Christian who heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and as he matures, he writes the gospel. Now, if you notice, in the pages of Luke. Luke is never mentioned in any of the verses. So so how is it that we know that Luke actually wrote this gospel? Well, number one, the earliest manuscript attributes the gospel of Luke to the author Luke. Secondly, and this is a key point, Luke is volume one of a two-volume work. Did you know that? Acts also was addressed to Theophilus. And as we read through Acts, there's something called the the we passages, where the author writes himself into the story. And the we passages go from Acts 16 all the way to the end, when Paul is in prison in Rome. And then while in prison, Paul writes a number of epistles, including Colossians. And at the end of Colossians, Paul writes this, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so, the manuscripts say it was Luke. Luke, somebody wrote himself into the narrative in the second half of Acts, placing himself in prison. And while in prison, writing one of his prison epistles, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. The unanimous testimony of ancient tradition is that Luke wrote it. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Luke is a physician. He's clearly a man of of some learning and and training, right? Before you let somebody give you potions in that day and age, you want to make sure they know what they're doing, right? I think this mushroom might work. Why don't you try it out, right? You want to make sure they know what they're doing. So there would be a certain level of intellectual competence. Secondly, he would be somebody who traveled quite extensively with Paul. And thirdly, he would be someone who is committed to the message and understands the message. And fourthly, Luke would be a Gentile 
who's basically a former outsider writing to other outsiders. And this shows itself in his approach. He wasn't an eyewitness. He heard from eyewitnesses. And so to compile a narrative that you didn't actually see, how do you go about doing that? And that's where we see his methodical approach. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Luke says, no offense to all those other people who wrote these accounts. I want to offer you my own take. Now, do you know how many biographies have been written or how many books have been written where Abraham Lincoln's a subject? It's 15,000. 15,000. I think I've read three, maybe more. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot because he's such a fascinating historical figure. And they're like, well, why does everyone keep on wanting to write another book on Lincoln? Well, it might be that they got family correspondence or they got their hands on a, on a diary or perhaps somebody wants to write an academic biography or somebody might want to write something for, for children or they might want to talk about this one event in his life. I mean, there's lots of reasons, but just because you write a biography doesn't mean you indict the rest. All that it means is that you want to add your own take to it. And so with Luke... He is a Gentile writing to other Gentiles. And he wants to write in a way that's persuasive to other Gentiles. As if to say, I wasn't there, and you weren't there. But for your sake, I have talked to many other people who were there, and this is what they told me. It seemed good to me, this is his method, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So he says, first of all, having followed all things closely. The, the idea is dogging one's steps, like a private investigator, right? He has a magnifying glass and he's just following the footprints. That is the imagery that we have here. That Luke is following thing, these things very closely, doing some careful research and investigation. Secondly, he's following all things. There is this body of content that was at his disposal that he was able to keep into account. Now, I mentioned that half of Mark makes its way into Luke, but Luke has 70% more words than Mark. There's a lot of additional information. There's the account of John the Baptist and his birth narrative. You have Jesus' birth narrative. The... Uh, prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the sinner and the tax collector, the story of Zacchaeus, all of those make their way into the Gospel of Luke, and that's exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. Clearly, he had his own sources that did not re- that that access the information that Mark and Matthew and John did not include. We also learn that he investigated all things carefully. He just just didn't take it verbatim. He investigated it. He researched it. As we read through Acts, we see that he had an encounter with Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the original deacons who was present in Jerusalem during Pentecost. We also, uh, you know, there's some speculation with all of the inside account of what's going on in Herod's household and the direct mention of Joanna, the wife of one of the stewards, that he had maybe inside access to the the palace intrigue that gave him some additional information. 
We also know that he followed these things closely for some time past. When you look at the book of Acts, Luke writes himself into the book of Acts around A.D. 49. And he is on and off with Paul until A.D. 62. So that means that he's with Paul for, do the math, right, 13 years. And was there anyone more connected than Paul? Paul would have known all the important people by name. Paul would have known all of the apostles, the living apostles, by name. Paul was familiar with all of the eyewitnesses. Remember in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, he talks about how Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to James, and then to more than 500, right? Paul knew it. And so Luke, traveling with Paul, would be able to have access to all of Paul's sources, And finally, he decides to write an orderly account for you. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's all chronological. We know that sometimes Luke grouped things topically, but he writes a persuasive account. One written by a Gentile to Gentiles to persuade Gentiles of the truth of the gospel of Luke. And this kind of brings us to the noble purpose of Luke. A lot of times when you read a biography, the author will give a, a prologue, right? He'll give some sort of explanation of why do we need another biography. When I had COVID last year, I read a biography on Joseph Stalin. I figure I'm kind of weak in leadership, so it might be good to learn some lessons. <laughs> and it was a, a biography that was translated from Russian, written by a Russian academic. And this was written in 2017. And the reason why he wrote it is because in his country and among his colleagues, there was a growing revisionism about Joseph Stalin. There was a growing sympathy for him, where the story of Stalin was being rewritten to see him as the hero who led Russia to victory in the Great War, as the one who built a superpower, right? Kind of makes sense in light of some of the events we're seeing right now. Right? There's almost this movement to restoring the glory of the Soviet Union. And so he wanted to write a biography to remind everybody what kind of tyrant Stalin actually was. Right? There was a purpose and there was an agenda. And, and so when Luke writes this biography, he's not going to say, just read what the other people wrote. He had a purpose in mind. He had an objective. He wanted something to get across to his audience, his unique audience. And we see that in the verse 3. He writes to most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is not the only time Theophilus was mentioned. Beginning of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Right? This is volume two. kind of gives you an idea that this was a majestic work. 
And really the, the timing of Acts, the fact that it ends in around AD 62, kind of gives us an idea of right around when Luke was written. It was Luke first, then he wrote Acts. Probably while Paul was in prison, bouncing these ideas off of him. And this was a book that was written for a man named Most Excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus literally means um, friend of God, God lover. It's Greek in nature. People speculate because of that, as well as the emphasis on the Gentiles, that this was a Gentile. And the phrase most excellent, coupled with the fact that a book was written for him, might imply that he was a man of means, uh, that he was maybe the patron who helped to fund and sponsor Luke so that he can devote his time to, to writing out this work. Now, with that in mind, this was written, according to verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, like I said, Theophilus, at a minimum, was a seeker. It is more likely that he is a believer, a young believer. He needs to uh, be more certain. And when we look at the timing of when this was written, Christianity was really at a crossroads. And in that day and age, they had official religions. You had the Roman religion, which was basically a Latin version of the Greek version, where they'd worship Zeus or Jupiter, depending on what language you spoke. And then you had the Jews, who were so unruly and so impossible to govern, who they couldn't integrate into their pantheon of gods, that they said, all right, you Jews could just have your own official religion, right? So two official religions. And anything that was a deviation from those two religions was out of bounds. I know in Russia for a long time, they had official religions. They would even allow the, there was a Russian Baptist um, coalition. They were an official religion. But if you were an evangelical Protestant not affiliated with the Baptist, you were considered a cult, and dangerous, divisive, and they would just drive you out. This is the same kind of thought. If you have too many religions, it's counterproductive and harmful to the empire. And so as long as Christianity was um, considered a strand of Judaism, right, where you have Christ, the Messiah, they were in safe legal territory. But as the mission progressed and became very clear that they were at variance with many of the Jewish codes and the fact that the Jewish establishment rejected them because it would not force the Gentiles into being circumcised, there was greater space where not only the Jews were going to persecute Christians, now the Romans started to persecute them as well. And so you are Theophilus, you are a man of means, you are perhaps a young Christian, you have a lot to lose if you follow Christ. Agreed? And so sometimes before you make this big costly decision, it's good to kind of count the cost. And you think he might have had many questions on his mind. For instance, if, if Jesus really is the Messiah, why was he rejected by his countrymen? If Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, does that mean I have to be a Jew? Do I need to get circumcised? Is there a, a place in Jesus' kingdom for a Gentile like myself? How do I really know that this religion is truly of God? 
Right? Those are all the questions that he may be asking. And what's the answer? Well, the answer is in the truth of this gospel. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Sometimes for believers, it's good to have greater certainty and confidence so that we can have greater conviction. Now, as a young Christian, I had a real fascination with apologetics. Uh, I was on the debate team when I was in high school, and most of my friends were atheist and antagonistic towards Christianity. They did not believe it was true. And so I would read all the books, right? Josh McDowell, you name it, I would read it. And I have all these reasons why creation points to the existence of God. I would have my historical proofs for the, uh, for the resurrection. And, and eventually, as I would interact with them and, and talk to them, it became very clear that the point of attack is not they can't believe, but that they won't. I, I now just ask the question, if I can prove to you with absolute certainty in the next five minutes that Jesus is the Son of God, He rose from the dead, you must believe in Him to have eternal life, otherwise you're going to hell, Will you convert at the end of that five minutes? And everyone says, uh, no. Right? It doesn't matter what kind of proof I give them. Now, does that mean that Josh McDowell and all those books have no benefit? Well, they do in the sense that they give you greater certainty that what we read here is true, that the resurrection did happen, right? Theophilus has an opening. He's not antagonistic. He wants to believe it's true, and Luke is giving him an orderly account, a persuasive account, to let him know that it really is true, that you can be certain it really is worth following Jesus Christ. And Jesus will take you as you are, Theophilus. There is room in his kingdom for you. That's why when you read the Gospel of Luke, it's, it's amazing how many references to outsiders. You have mention of Jesus' compassion for sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles and, and women and others who were deemed socially undesirable and, and unacceptable by, by establishment Jews. Uh, you, you see that Jesus has a heart for all people. I'll just give you a smattering of some verses. Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Luke 2.32, Jesus is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. Luke 3.6, all flesh will see the salvation of God. Luke 24.47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Theophilus, you can have confidence that Jesus is real and He wants to rescue you. In the words of of Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as we keep on reading the Holy Spirit that announced the wonderful, glorious work of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that announced the birth of Jesus Christ was also present in volume two at the birth of the church. And as we keep on reading, the Holy Spirit baptized the Gentiles so that they would be acceptable as they are. Theophilus, there's room for you in the kingdom. This is true. I've talked to some eyewitnesses, and they confirmed it. There is a, a place for you. And this is only good news if it actually happened. This past week, I watched a discussion, debate, 
It was so civil, it was probably a discussion between an Anglican theologian and a gay conservative. And they were talking about the place of religion. And they asked both of them, does it really matter if it happened? Does historicity matter? And, and the gay conservative expressed his appreciation for Christianity. No other religion teaches you to love your enemies. No other religion really has a meaningful basis for forgiving those who have wronged you. Christianity is good for society, and whether or not it's real or not, I, I don't know if it really matters. I think there might be a way where we can benefit from it, even if it isn't true. And the Anglican theologian just went straight to the words of Paul. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. I mean, if Jesus is not real, and if Jesus is not alive, does it even matter? I mean, death is the ultimate relationship killer, isn't it? You can't have a relationship with a dead person. It's just strange. You can sing, my heart will go on, all you want. You can say, they live in my dreams and in my memories, but that is just a lie, isn't it? If somebody is dead, they are gone. If Jesus is dead, you can talk about how he lives in our memories, but that's just a euphemism for he's not real. He can't intercede for you. He can't pray for you. He can't mediate from you for you. He can't hear your prayers. He can't come to your aid. He cannot rescue you from the righteous wrath of God that you deserve. Well, perhaps he kind of lives on and we just don't know. Maybe his spirit lives on. Well, how do you know if he wasn't resurrected? That's just Hallmark card theology is what it is. And it's just so amazing how so many people who reject the historicity of the Bible, they want the comfort, they want the hope, but they don't want the authority. They don't want to be bound to believe that what happened is true. I mean, often I get into conversations with people uh, about the gospel, and, and, and one of the questions I will get is, besides the Bible, what proof do you have that Jesus existed? You guys ever heard that one? Besides the Bible, what proof do you have that Jesus existed? Now, there's a lot assumed in that question, right? The Bible's not a credible book. It's a book of fables. We need to get our real history from elsewhere. If people actually believe in the resurrection, then they are not credible. Now, I could go to Suetonius, Josephus, Tacitus, and maybe some of the other ancient writers who have a clear testimony of the presence of Christians in Rome and a man named Crestus or Christ. But this is what I do now. I actually take them to this passage of Luke and I say, I want you to read this out loud and tell me, does the author understand himself as a chronicler of a legend? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. 
Is that the opening of a fable? There's no tortoise or hare in there. This is history. Now, a couple of months ago, I had a friend uh, reach out to me. You guys know I would do that annual ski trip. It's not all fun and games. I try to share the gospel with people. And I befriended this man uh, maybe about six years ago. And we've had a kind of a growing relationship, super nice guy. He's a former college water polo player from the Netherlands who came to the U.S. and studied microbiology, and he's now a project manager at a Silicon Valley startup. So extremely intelligent guy. And, and the last time we got together about two years ago, we had a really good conversation. I gave him what is the gospel and a, and a MacArthur study Bible. Well, he reached out to me uh, in January, and he said he wanted to talk. And so we Zoomed together, we reconnected, and he said, I just want to tell you what happened after we had our last conversation. He said he read that initial book on the airplane on the way home, he really liked it. And then he put his Bible on his dresser, and it just sat there for a couple months. But then he remembered, well, Dave gave me this, I, I might as well start reading it. So he picked it up, and he thought, okay, I'll start reading the Gospels, because that's what I recommended. And as he's reading the Gospels, he just explained how he had this huge mental block. Every time he read about a miracle, he just thought, come on, that just can't be true. So he would read it, but he was just so cynical about it, he never could get the meaning. And then he, he thought, and I kind of wonder if he read this passage, maybe I ought to read the Bible like it's true. Maybe I ought to read the Bible like it was meant to be understood. And once he did that, his eyes just became open, and he just was devouring the Bible every day, reading books that supported that, that really helped him work through those things. And, and eventually, about a year later after reading it, he had a personal crisis, and he actually prayed to Jesus for the first time. And when you pray to Jesus, you don't pray to a dead man, do you? You pray to Jesus because you read the scriptures and it says Jesus is alive and he has ascended up into heaven and he is a person who hears you. And now it changed his life. He's going to a good church. He actually just finished reading Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. So you can pray for his growth. But you know, there, there is something when Luke writes the Bible and you always hear about, you know, the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Judas and, and you ever read those things, they're just really weird books. They're just super weird. They talk about how uh, a, 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 cro a talking cross came out of the tomb and Jesus' head actually stretched up like Gumby up into heaven. I mean, it's just this weird thing, but the Gospel of Luke is very different. When you read Luke and Acts, you see names like Herod the Great, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Herod, Pilate, Gamaliel, Festus, Agrippa, and Felix. There's real places Rome, Caesarea, Judah. The, and in the midst of all of this history and verifiable people and places are testimonies of miracles and teachings and the resurrection. And, and it's very clear that Luke's purpose is to testify to this reality. As one Gentile speaking to another, I assume most people here are Gentiles. You weren't there, I wasn't there, but I talked to the people who were, 
and this is what they saw. And Theophilus, who perhaps is having some doubts, wondering if it's really going to be worth walking with the Lord in light of the persecution I might endure, there is a message that any suffering that you encounter in this life will be nothing compared to the suffering you would encounter if you reject Christ. And any reward that this world can give you pales in comparison to the reward offered by Jesus Christ. Luke 1.69, And he raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Luke 1.71, That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Luke 1.77, To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. You have stories of Zacchaeus, the last person on earth who you think would repent, would repent. And then, after Zacchaeus repents, this is one of the great passages in Luke. Can't wait to get this one seven years from now. <clears throat> Luke 19.9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to the house, to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. See, the gospel of, of Luke is not meant to just get some kind of intellectual consent. The gospel of Luke and the truth of the gospel of Luke is meant to drive you to conviction. Are you convinced that this is true? Not just in some moral fable, but Jesus is real. Jesus really rose from the dead. And what he said about how you can be acceptable to him even as a Gentile is true. As we go through it, let yourself be convinced. Let yourself be convinced that there is salvation under no one else but through Jesus Christ. Know that as you encounter Jesus portrayed in these pages, this is not an act of fiction, but a historical account of a real person, of the Son of Man, of the Son of God, who took on human flesh to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, so that we might have salvation when we believe in the resurrected Son of God. That is the truth of the Gospel of Luke. It's the truth that transforms, certifies, changes, sanctifies, and prepares us to face whatever challenges of this world comes, knowing that the truth of this points to the greater truth that Jesus is alive and He is coming back. Well, Father, we come before You grateful for this account, grateful that what we believe is not fiction but truth, Grateful to know that we can know for certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as we go through this, I pray that we will do so with soft, teachable hearts, that we will want to be convinced, and that we, as a result, will live with conviction. In Christ's name, amen.